I am really glad to be here tonight. My children were distraught for some reason that I wasn't going to be home tonight. So you can pray for them as you think about them. That they'll sleep, even though Daddy's not there. I have three little girls. They're not so little anymore, but they're 10, 7, and 5. And they were sad that I wasn't going to be there tonight. So I told them, hey, I've got to go talk about something really important with some college students. And that's a good thing. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, that other group, for 14 years and uh, lived all over the place, including several years in China. And uh, one of my favorite places in the world is a college campus. So even though I don't look like I belong here anymore, I could be like a weird grad student or teaching assistant or something. Um, I'm glad to be back. Hey, quick housekeeping note. Look at your outline. Uh, It's not quite right, which is fine. (laughs) I don't want to confuse you. The third point is supposed to say, obscuring the gospel, don't be squishy. You'll, you'll get it when we get there. I just wanted to make it clear. I'm going to talk most of my time on point one, okay? So when I hit point two, and you realize I'm on point two, and how much time has gone by, don't freak out. The other two points are not equal length to point one, all right? So don't worry. Um, look at your text in your handout. Is it a handout, a bulletin, whatever it is? Look at your text. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll talk about it, all right? This is what God has to say to us tonight. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Don't hear that word every day. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And you jump down a few verses to verse 30. He, is, he, meaning God, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then finally to the end of 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, you want to teach us something tonight. We pray you'll make that perfectly clear what that is. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed that things have changed. Is this on? It doesn't feel like it's on. Okay. You may have noticed that things have changed. Now, a lot of you aren't old enough to notice what it was like before, right? I'm not really even old enough, but we've lost the center. Here's what I mean. Culturally, we don't have an agreed-upon center. Now, maybe we never had as much of one as we think. That might be fair. But still, there was generally an agreed-upon set of values and principles that felt like the center of the culture, things we agreed on. And that has gone away. In fact, we've even lost the idea that there is or could be or should be a center. 
Now, realistically, we all have a center, whether we've ever thought about any of this or not. We have things that take center stage that we believe in most firmly and that mean the most to us. Sometimes it's a particular philosophy. Most of the time, it's ourselves, right? We're all really committed to me. I don't mean Jeff Hardy. I mean yourself. We're all committed to ourselves. And yet, what do we do with beauty and truth and goodness? See, when we lose the center, all of a sudden, we start to wonder, is there any such thing as truth or beauty or goodness? And if you conclude that there isn't, that those things don't actually exist, And you start heading towards aesthetic and intellectual and moral and cultural death and decline. Things start to fall apart if you conclude that there's no such thing as beauty or truth or goodness. So, eh, let's just do whatever I can do to get whatever I can get. Now, like I said, you may never have thought about this or cared about it in the past. You're here tonight for a variety of reasons. Some of you are here, probably a decent portion because you believe in God and think it's important. A certain percentage of you are here because you want to believe in God. You think that beauty, truth, and goodness have to be true, and maybe they're related fundamentally to Jesus. Some of you are here tonight because you needed something to stimulate discussion and something to uh, criticize afterwards, so hopefully I'll give you something good to work with. And then finally, some of you are here because you needed something to do or there was someone good-looking in the room you were hoping to catch his or her eye, tonight, whatever the case is, whatever you're here, the story still remains that things have changed. They're not what they used to be culturally. And we all feel and experience those things, whether we ever think about them. So if you think about it, you'll probably notice that compared to your parents' or grandparents' generation, this there's no center anymore affects even how we think about and live out our Christian faith, right? And one of the things is when there's no center, even Christians struggle to give you an answer to what matters most. What's the center? One of the best answers, and I think the right answer, as you'll see tonight, is something we call the gospel. But that's pretty broad churchy language that people can pour into whatever they want to pour in there, right? Because if you ask a bunch of people who claim to be Christians, what's the gospel? They're going to give you a bunch of different answers. For some people, it's justice for the oppressed. For others, it's just love your neighbor. For some people, it's eat locally sourced kale. For some people, it's vote for my candidate, whichever candidate it might be. My political party, that's really the gospel, and you conflate the two. For some people, it's here are six points, and you have to believe them, and wear pictures of your favorite theologian on your underpants, right? You get people who have weird, I mean, no one actually does that. There's some mugs and t-shirts maybe, but probably not underpants. People will tell you all sorts of things are the gospel. And you know that they can't all be the center, right? They can't all be the case. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to spend most of our time clarifying, that is correct, clarifying, number one, what the gospel is. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, which is going back to the source One of the earliest New Testament documents even, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is writing about what is the gospel. So look at your first section in your text, 17 through 25, and let's talk about how the first Christians understood what the gospel really was. So you see, he's here to preach the gospel, not with fancy words, in case his fanciness 
would empty the cross of its power. So immediately, he's telling us there's something really important about this symbol, the cross. It's really, this cross thing is going to carry a lot of weight for Paul in what he's talking about. Now, we all have some vague notion of what the cross means. People wear it, they put it up in their house, they fight off vampires and zombies. Or Can you fight off a zombie with a cross? No? I don't watch the zombie stuff yet, so, sorry. We all have some vague notion of what these things are, right? What the cross is, but how is Paul using it? What does he mean by it? You may know that the cross was actually a brutal torture instrument. It was a instrument of terrorism, state institutional terrorism, where the Roman Empire would put people on the cross to make an example of them. And it was a horrible way to die. And everyone, the idea of a cross, you would never even talk about crucifixion at a polite dinner party, because it was a horrible thing. And here's Paul talking about the cross as it's a a terribly important thing. I read an article today. I just happened to cross it on the internet. It was a non-religious family said, hey, you know, it was almost Easter one year. We thought we should probably expose our kids to something religious. So they watched some 1970s movie about Jesus. And I don't think it was like a flower child version. I think it was just, you know, made in the 70s. But it had a graphic depiction of the crucifixion. And this non-religious father told this fairly horrifying story of how three weeks later his four-year-old came up to him and said, Daddy, I don't want to, basically, I don't want to be crucified, but if I am, can it be in the backyard with you and Mom? And he's like, oh, no. What, what have I done to this child? Now, you can guess. Why do you ever read the comments to anything on the Internet? I don't know, but I did. <laughs> Wasting time. But the comments were all, yeah, see, religion is sick, religion is evil. But Paul's point here is that actually it's the Romans who are the oppressors. They're doing the evil thing by crucifying Jews and terrifying people. What they're trying to do is keep them down, right? Because if you see someone, she saw a video version of someone being crucified and she was terrified for who knows how long. If you saw someone you knew in your town being crucified by the Romans, you'd think twice about crossing them, right? Good boy, I really don't want that to happen to me. So it's just offensive, horrifying thing. I think it's fair to say that the emotional experience of it might be a little bit like what we experience when we see those ISIS beheading videos. I hope you haven't actually watched those whole videos. I haven't. The the news won't show them because they're horrifying, right? They're disgraceful. We don't want to see that. It's horrible. It's dehumanizing. It's terrible. And Paul's saying, yes, all that's true about the cross, And if you conclude that the cross is foolish, that makes a lot of sense. Look what he says. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We're all going to die, right? And if you look at the idea of Jesus dying on the cross and say, so what? How does Jesus dying help me? I'm still going to die. My dog dying didn't help. My grandma dying sure didn't help. How is someone else dying that I don't even know? How is that going to help me? Paul doesn't say your conclusion is, hey, you're an idiot. He goes, well, yeah, that's exactly how it would feel to any of us. It seems like foolishness that this is what God would do. He would send Jesus to die in this horrible way. But notice what else he says. In the same section, he says, the word of the cross. This event, Jesus on the cross, isn't just an event. It's got some story to it. 
there's a narrative that comes along with it. It means something. It means something important and significant. And Paul says, I've got to tell you what it means. The word of the cross is, let me explain to you why this event really matters. And Paul's a great one to do it. Because Paul used to think, just like we all naturally think, that this is insane. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, Paul's job was persecuting Christians, putting them in jail, and in some cases presiding over their death. So Paul's basic job description was telling people, hey, Jesus is dead, quit following him, quit talking about him, and if you won't, you may end up just like him. That was Paul's job for a while. So if it doesn't make sense to you, if it seems brutal and ugly and terrible and weird, Paul's with you. It does seem like all those things. And yet, look at the language. Paul says, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, Paul went from the Christians being those people over there that he could look down on to being one of them. He's now in the us. Something happened to Paul. And if you don't know the story, or if you do, a refresher, he's on the way to arrest some more Christians. And while he's on the way, he literally gets knocked down by a light from heaven. And Jesus speaks to him and criticizes him for killing Jesus' friends, basically. Blinds him and absolutely turns his life on its head. See the word of the cross idea? Paul's got some notion that Jesus has something to say. And he has something to say about this thing that happened to him, this event called Jesus on the cross. So you look and you think, hey, something happened to Paul, something significant, such that he said this used to be foolishness and now it has power. Do you see that in your text? Now it has power. Those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on and on to describe how our wisdom as great as it is, is never good enough to get us to God. We do some pretty amazing things, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis said, cows don't have a lot of capacity. You don't have an especially good or bad cow. You just can't have cow. Right? He might taste good or smell bad, but he's not morally good or bad. People have incredible capacity for good and evil. We can do amazing things with our own wisdom, and Paul's saying, really, in some sense, there's only one significant thing that we can't do on our own. Our wisdom won't get us to God. We can't figure it out, think it out, philosophize it out, theologize it out. We'll never get there on our own. He has to come to us. He's got to come do something in our direction because we're never going to get there. We're finite, Right? This is all we got. We have our limits intellectually. We have only so much capacity. And we have moral limits, right? We don't do the things that we should do. We do things even we don't want to do. Don't worry about what God wants you to do or not for a moment. We don't even do the things that we wish we would do right. We have moral incapacities and intellectual incapacities. We can't get to God by ourselves. So Paul's telling how in this event that means something significant called the cross of Christ, that God said, I'm going to have to come to you. 
And I'm going to step onto this horrible torture instrument called the cross. And as gory and weird as it is, here's what I'm doing. I'm entering into your shame. I'm entering into your moral confusion and disorientation that you can't make sense of yourself and what really matters. I'm stepping into your sense of being lost or broken, your sense of never knowing what matters and how to fit in and always being frustrated and disappointed by your inabilities. Jesus is coming to step into all the stuff that's broken and take it on himself. He's coming to do what we can never do. He's coming to die a death that would utterly undo us and destroy us, to give us life that we can't get on our own. We can't get it anywhere else. We can't get it any other way. This event, this amazing thing that happens, Jesus says, I'm going to come to you because I've seen what you're trying, and it's not going to make it to me. And so this unique event, this person you see in 23, we preach Christ crucified. It's this event, this person, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. Those two facts together are the fundamental building blocks of what we call the gospel. It's him and it's what he did. And he did it for us. So now we've got Christ crucified. That's the big event. And it means something for us. There's some sort of word, some sort of information, truth, Somewhere, some story to go into that comes out of this event. Now, keep looking. He says in 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's so weird and odd that this is how God chose to do it. God says, I'm going to deal with death. And we go, yay! We all hate death. I mean, no one likes death. It's the hardest, weirdest experience any of us ever have is dealing with the death of anyone or anything we love. And God says, I'm going to deal with death. And you go, great, how are you going to do it? Magic elixir? Fountain of youth? Maybe cut off my head and cryogenically freeze it and then you're going to reanimate me someday? My people are doing that kind of thing these days. Are you just going to download my consciousness into a machine like Johnny Depp? Probably no one saw that movie. I sure didn't. Maybe you saw it. I don't know. The numbers say no one saw that movie. We always want to somehow extend ourselves past death. And we can't do it, right? We haven't figured that one out. And people are confidently telling you that we're about to figure it out. I'm going to confidently tell you I don't think we're about to figure it out. And then Paul goes, oh, Jesus has dealt with death. And we go, great. How does he do it? By dying. You seem to miss the whole point, Jesus. I thought you were supposed to, like, fix it. Like, is this like a Jedi mind trick? And you're, I'm dead. See, I did it. You're like, what? How is that beating death? And what Paul tells us in a hundred different ways is that in the counterintuitive way that Jesus works, he has come and trampled over death by his death. He's bigger than death. He's superseded and gone beyond death, which leads us to the bottom section here where Paul says in verses 1 through 4 there at the bottom of your text, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Here's what it is. 
Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. So this Jesus event now, it goes from He died. You know, that's not quite good enough for me. <laughs> Interesting, maybe. Makes for a great movie from Mel Gibson. But for the rest of us, He's dead, right? And Paul says, Oh, no, 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 no. When I say Christ crucified... I don't mean that's the end of the story. That's just my shorthand. So he comes back in 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of the same book and spends this whole chapter on resurrection and how many people Jesus appeared to and how the fact it wasn't that he swooned or that you know, he got a little lightheaded, they thought he was dead. He was dead. Dead. And in the ground. And he comes back with new life. And his buddies get to touch him and eat fish with him, and hang out with him. He's really alive, but he's alive in a new way. There's something new even about what's happened to Jesus himself when he comes back. He's got this new life sort of radiating from him. There's something different about him. I mean, the fact is, he was dead and alive. That's enough, right? But even beyond that, he's got this quality of newness about him. And Paul's saying, see, that, that's what he's doing. He's the first one to do that. And he's going to do that for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. You see that in verse 21 back up there in the middle. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, the foolishness that the dead guy is somehow saving us from death, to save those who believe. Now, Here's what we have so far. This Jesus person, who all over the place the Bible makes clear, is an utterly unique person in all of history, fully God and fully man. Yes, he's a carpenter from Nazareth, and also he's God in the flesh somehow. Amazing. And he comes along and he says, I'm going to die this horrible death, and then I'm going to come back. When I come back, I'm going to prove to you that I am who I said I was. Because I came back from death, I trampled on it and came right back, and now I'm going to offer new life to you. So the person Jesus, dead and buried and resurrected, that's the good news. And here's how I want you to think about it. Okay, the word, of course, you know, like any other language, this word for good news in the Bible is used all over the place in Greek world. It means good tidings, tidings of comfort and joy, if you want to think of it that way, great. This good tidings, good news, really good news, important news. So think of it like this. Uh, let's say there's a wall around App. You're in an ancient city, and the king of App is leading your army to battle against the king of Western Carolina University. And you're meeting in Asheville. And, and your job, your job, you're not going out today with the team. You're staying here on the wall, on the city wall, and you're waiting to see what happens. Because, see, this isn't an uh, intramural contest. It's not even a football game. It's life and death. So if your king loses, you know what happens? Best case scenario, you're running for your life. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario, pillage, burning, slavery, murder, massacre, right? Because if Western Carolina beats your king, they're coming, man. And they're going to burn this place down. And so you are waiting with the most important news your city is going to hear. And you see some dust in the distance, and you know the rider is approaching. 
And you strain out over the wall, waiting to hear. You can tell he's talking, but he's too far away to hear him. And he's yelling something, and finally it hits your eardrums. And you know this is the most important thing you're going to hear, one way or the other. And you hear, good news. It's good news. We won. Our king won. You know, sweet. <laughs> you immediately turn around into the city. Everyone is in pins and needles. They're terrified. And you yell, good news. Good news. We won. We're not going to die. That's good news, isn't it? That's the word for good news. That's one of the ways that that word was used before the Bible. Was to announce incredibly momentous tidings. But notice in the story what you did to accomplish the good news. You didn't. And yet you get to participate and benefit from it. Here's how Eugene Peterson says it. As soon as I find it. The gospel story engages us It brings us into the action as recipients and participants without dumping the responsibility on us of making it all turn out right. So this is incredible good news. It's life and death. You can participate in it and be engaged by it, but it's not something you did, and it's not up to you to make it all turn out right. It's something God has done for you in this event called death and resurrection. And he did it because he loves us, because he wants to bring us back from death and give us life. That's why he did it. And that is very, very good news. And what we do then is we believe it. We follow Jesus, meaning we run hard after him and take him seriously and follow his ways. We trust in him, meaning, no, I can't see everything it means, and I don't fully understand what's happening, but I trust that God is bigger than fill in the blank. And I rest in him. You know, when I sit in this chair, I'm resting in the chair, right? I know you can't all see me. Hang hang in there. (laughs) Not that that's a big loss, but... I'm sitting in the chair. What's holding me up? The chair, right? If I have some doubts about the chair, ooh, the chair's getting shaky. I mean, that doesn't mean the chair's going to fall down, does it? See, we rest in what Jesus has done for us, in this incredible good news. It's momentous, and we put all our weight on it. How weird would it be if you were hovering over the chair? Well, I want to hedge my bets. Chair may not make it. I did eat a lot tonight at our daily bread. So I'm not going to sit all the way down, right? How weird would that be? But we do it all the time with Jesus. Well, I don't know. I'm not going to go all in, okay? The death and resurrection of Jesus is good news, and we're called to believe it, to rest in it, to sit all our weight on it, and he'll hold us up. That's the gospel, okay? What God did for you in death and resurrection. And then there are thousands of implications and applications, all right? But that's the good news. He did it for you. As Tim Keller says, it's good news, not good advice. Good advice goes, you better. Good news says, here's what was done. Right? When you read CNN or Drudge or MSNBC, whatever you read, it's news. 
It doesn't immediately tell you what to do. It just is news. And this is the best possible news with incredible ramifications for you. Now, two ways we get it wrong. There's lots of ways, but two to warn us about tonight. Look at it. Told you these were shorter, I promise. The first way we obscure this and get it wrong is we're stingy. So being stingy with the gospel means restricting it in some way that is not true and biblical. The only biblical restriction on the gospel is it's for anyone and everyone who will believe. That's it. Okay, that's the restriction on the gospel. It's for anyone at every place and any time who will believe in Jesus and put their weight on him and rest in him, okay? That's it. But we get stingy with it. Let me tell you two ways this happens. One way we're stingy with it is we're stingy about who the gospel is really for. Okay? So sometimes, though by no means all the time, sometimes the people who struggle with this are either people who grew up in a maybe stricter church background or people who really like theological precision. By the way, a church background and theological precision are good things. I hope so, because my children are getting plenty of both. Because I'm the pastor. And my five-year-old could probably, no offense, I don't know any of you, could probably give you a better orthodox definition of the Trinity than many of you. Simply because she's learned the catechism questions and answers. And there's one God and three persons, name them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the way to school yesterday. Got it. Right? Theological precision is great. Growing up in the church is great. However, sometimes we get stingy with our hearts about who the gospel is for. And we think, well, I'm not sure that person measures up. I don't know if that person is really going to do it the right way. And we start to unbiblically shut down the category of who could be let in. And there's an old joke. It's not really funny, but... It's an old line. <laughs> there's, no, there's no unrighteous but me and thee, and I'm starting to worry about thee. That's the stinginess of heart. That if you don't think just like I do, if you don't put it all together just like I do, if you don't look like me or talk like me or act like me, then maybe really this thing isn't for you until you're more like me. And that's a stinginess of heart because, see, what I just told you is the gospel is about death to life. It's about shame to honor. But what you just said in your heart was the gospel is about performing up to somebody's standard. And guess whose standard it usually is? Yours. Right? When we're being stingy, it's our standard and you don't meet it. Sorry. And that's not the gospel because that's performance. And when you do that, you're acting as if you must have met the standard, even though all the unwashed masses out there have not. And if you've met the standard, then you've missed the gospel, because you've lowered the standard so you can meet it. Nobody meets the standard except Jesus. So if you lower the standard and meet the gospel, meet your standard, then use it to be stingy to everyone else, you've missed the gospel. Here's the other kind of stinginess that's a problem. If we don't actually think it's good news, we won't give it out. We'll just hang on to it. We'll hang on to it as if somehow we're going to lose it if we try to let it go. It's mine. I don't want to lose it. I'll put it in my pocket. I'm never going to show it to anyone. Guess what? You're in much greater danger of losing the gospel if you put it in your pocket. 
Because it's designed to go out. It's designed to be passed on. It's good news. If the good news stops at you and never goes anywhere else, then all of a sudden it's old news. It's not good news. It's not news anymore. It's just a thing. There's no good news because no one's good enough for it. And you keep it to yourself in your back pocket. And this is called Reformed University Fellowship. And I can say this because I'm Reformed. <laughs> reformed people sometimes are especially bad. Don't have to be. We really shouldn't be. But sometimes we're especially bad at wanting to pass it on. Well, I don't know. Someone might say it wrong. <laughs> yeah, they might, like you might. <laughs> but let's talk about Jesus, and he died, and he rose again, and it has momentous implications, and let's start there at least, and we won't get it too far wrong. Jesus might even help us. Let's find out. So you don't want to be stingy, because the good news is too good not to give away. But honestly, for most people in here, Probably your bigger problem, though it's fine if I'm wrong. It doesn't matter if I'm wrong on this. I think you're more likely to have the problem of being squishy. I don't mean because you ate too often at our daily bread. It's a separate kind of squishy. When you get to 40, you really worry about those things more. This could be called, the biblical category for this would be zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. You know zeal? Woo! About whatever. You're excited, you're enthusiastic. You know why most revolutionary movements in the last 200 years have included lots of college students? Because you're so dang excited and excitable and full of energy and ambition, and that's all really good. You know, I could use a little more of that sometimes at my church. I love my people. But when you're 45 and have a mortgage and four kids, you know, sometimes your zeal slows down a bit. But see, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. It's a real problem because it's not about anything. Think about this for a second. You're excited, you're energetic. Yay, God, go, Jesus. Do go, do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? Well, you know, I don't want to be too restrictive. I mean, I don't want to be closed-minded or narrow. I mean, none of us want to be closed-minded and narrow. None of us want to come all across that way. But here's the problem. If every question, the foundational core of things, if we ask you, do you believe this? And whoop. What about that? It's all squishy. You don't believe in anything. Right? That's the danger. And you know what it is? You don't believe in Jesus. You just like the emotional hearts that come along with something spiritual, and you end up at being a well-wisher. I want good stuff for you and the world. Well, that's great. We all do. But it's the spiritual equivalent of the mean people suck bumper sticker. We can all agree mean people suck, right? I mean, they do. It's, it's true. No one likes a mean person. But if that's all we're saying... If that's the equivalent of all we're saying, we're squishy with the gospel. We don't actually believe anything. And we're just going, yeah, good stuff. And that's about the strongest thing we can say. You've got to firm that up. You've got to get that solidified. If you go to the dentist, you don't want him to be a squishy about which tooth he's going to pick, right? 
He's like, well, I don't know. Does it really matter? It's all relative. Like, no, 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 no. I've got a bad tooth. I want that one drilled, and I want the good teeth left alone, please. But here we have this life and death good news, and we think, well, I don't want to be narrow-minded or I don't want to be annoying about my opinions. Well, we don't want you to be annoying about it. Just believe something that God has told us is true. Believe the gospel. And if you're going to say you're a Christian, you're going to come after Jesus, he can't just be a Jesus of your own making. See, that's the problem, right? Is that we go, well, I like these pieces of Jesus. I like this idea. I'll kind of cobble together my own stuff. And as soon as someone pushes me on, you really believe Jesus was God and man? Do you think he died for your sins? Do you think you have to believe in Jesus to access his benefits? You're like, well, I don't know. Maybe not. And you end up this amorphous blob on the floor. Right? Because you've got nothing. You just have some positive feelings. And Paul is not preaching spirituality. He's not preaching feel-goodyality. Okay? He's preaching Jesus and him crucified and raised again. And if you will rest all of your weight in him, then you'll get these incredible benefits that he's offered to you. He's not saying Jesus is another app that will make your life a little more convenient. He's not saying if you follow Jesus, everything will kind of go your way. That's what we call, and it's a technical term, prosperity gospel. Jesus' job is to make you happy. And you know what that is? That's selfishness with some Jesus sprinkles on top. That's all it is. Everyone loves sprinkles on their Sunday, right? They don't really do anything. They just look pretty. They don't even taste like anything. But they look nice. And you're like, well, I just want to feel good about me and stuff and people and little Jesus on top. And I'll call it Christianity. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. That's foolishness. But the foolishness of God... What he's actually done is better than the wisdom that you can come up with, that anyone can come up with. Here's the thing, and with this, we're done. The foolishness of God is this. For all that Jesus has done, he's entered into our sin and our shame. He's dealt with it. He's pulled us out of our shame and our shame out of us. He's done all of that. You know why? Do you know what he really wants to give us more than anything else? Himself. Jesus has done all of that, not so we can feel better about us, not so we can change the world. He's done all of that to give himself to us. And see, that's the final piece of the gospel I don't want you to miss. Jesus himself is the good news. Who he is And what he's done. He said, I'm coming all the way down into your misery, your shame, your pain. I'm going to come all the way down to you so then I can take you up to know God. You can actually know God. And then God himself becomes the center. The center that's missing. Hey, it's okay that our culture is missing the center. The center we came up with before wasn't necessarily as good as we think it was. But you know what? God can be the center. He can be the one you orbit around. The one you put all your weight in. That's what he's offering us in the gospel. His death and resurrection for you. So you can have all barriers between you and God removed. And you can actually know him. And that is really, really good news. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you love us. If we're honest, we think you should love us some days, and other days we know you shouldn't. It all seems foolishness to us, the stuff about death, conquering death, and yet your foolishness is wiser than our wisdom or anyone else's. We thank you that because we can't get to you, you've come to us. And we thank you that because of your great love with which you've loved us, you've shown us grace and mercy. You've done for us the thing that we couldn't do to give us the life we could never find or make on our own. Life with you, with you as the center, and your grace running all over us. Father, we thank you for good news. Teach us to trust in it, believe it, put all our weight on it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.